Amen. You may be seated. I encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me together to the Gospel according to Mark. And we will begin with the first verse of the first chapter. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The second book of the New Testament, second Gospel in the New Testament. If you were with us last week, last Lord's Day, you know that we have begun our Advent sermon series, and, and this season we're going to look at the Christmas story from the four different angles of the four Gospels. They each tell the Christmas story in their own unique, particular, Holy Spirit-guided and inspired way. And so we want to look at that together this season. And so last Lord's Day we started with the Gospel according to Mark, and we look how it began. He begins the Gospel, his telling of the Christmas story, by recounting the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the 14 generations of, 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 from Abraham to David to, to, to the Babylonian time. And we've talked about a number of things, but what we want to make sure we remember is that Matthew opened up his gospel this way in order to establish the identity of Jesus. He wants to answer the, the who of Christmas. And so being a, a, an Israelite, a Jew, and writing this gospel in particular, for the Israelites to show to them that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He begins with this genealogy, that this is Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, that the true Messiah, because he is salvation. He is the Messiah. He's the son of David. He is the son of Abraham. So that brings us this morning to the next gospel, and that's the gospel according to Mark. And so we'll look at uh, Christmas then according to Mark and beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Let's pray together as we come now to God's Word together. Lord, we come to you, and we, we come to you in a very beautiful setting. We have the beautiful sanctuary that is, that's decorated for the season, the Christmas tree and poinsettias and an Advent wreath. It reminds us of the beauty of the Gospel. But what makes the Gospel so beautiful is in part how ugly and, and loathsome our sins are that we were born dead in our sins and trespasses. We were enemies of the living God. That before salvation, we would have been gathered at the cross of Jesus, jeering and mocking and spitting on him, enjoying the spectacle of watching this man die. That was, that's what makes the gospel so beautiful. It's that the Father sent forth the Son to save those who hated him, who rebelled against him whose very sins would hang him on the cross. Lord, help us to hear and understand the beauty of the gospel this morning. May the Holy Spirit be here with me and be here with your people so we may hear and understand in this particular way. And we praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and let us stand together for the reading of God's word. Very short verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. The gospel of Mark is a very succinct, blunt sort of gospel. And his opening goes along with that. It's a very short verse, very succinct, very blunt but what if this verse, 
chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. What if this was all the Christmas story we had? Just this one sentence, just these handful of words. This is all the biblical account we had of the birth of Jesus Christ. That there is no account in Matthew. There is no genealogy, no, no family tree. No telling of the angel coming to Joseph, telling him not to divorce Mary, but instead to have the child, to name him Jesus, because he's going to be the savior of sinners. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And there's no Matthew telling of the visit of the wise men to Magi. What if we didn't have that? Well, there's no Luke account, that wonderful story that parallels, in a sense, Mary's story of, of Elizabeth also becoming pregnant. No, no telling of Gabriel coming to Mary to share with her the good news that was, was frightening and intimidating to at first. There's no account of the shepherds who are keeping their flock out in the fields by night. Well, there's no John account who doesn't just go back to the birth of Jesus, he goes back to the very, to the, to, to far, beyond, far before where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What if we had none of that? What the Christmas story, what if all this decoration was for this one sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, this is it. Well, if that was God's will, then we would delight in it. Because we would know this is all he wanted us to know. And we would be fine with it. It would be a Deuteronomy 29, 29 situation for us. But it's not God's will, is it? Because we have these other Christmas accounts from these other Gospels. We have these accounts from, from especially Matthew and Luke, that help build together the story that, that we so love and cherish. So I think, at least to me, this begs the question of why did Mark not include the Christmas story as we know it? Why is there no telling from Mark about uh, Angel Gabriel, our, our, our miraculous conception, our, our angels, or wives? Why is none of that? Surely he knew the story. He, he, he knew the story. If you remember back from our study of, of Mark, we know that the Gospel of Mark was authored by the apostles Peter's secretary, known as Mark, or also John Mark. They believe what, what, what Mark did is he followed Peter around and he wrote down uh, Peter's sermons and his teachings and his Bible studies and then he went and he con compiled this gospel. Because the, the gospel of Mark very much fits Peter's personality. It's very blunt, it's fast moving, it gets right to the point. And, and surely Peter knew the story of Jesus' birth. It was no secret. And, and, and Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends. I don't think it's beyond, you know, beyond comprehension that maybe one night they were sitting around the campfire and Peter said, you know, Jesus, you kind of said a little of this about your birth here and there. We've heard some other things. Could you, can you tell us more about, about your birth? And Jesus goes, absolutely, man. I've got, I've got a story for you. So Peter surely knew the Christmas story. Peter surely taught the Christmas story. He preached the Christmas story. So why did his secretary, Mark, not include that story as we know it? We know he was guided by the Holy Spirit. We know he sat down to sift through all of Peter's teachings and sermons so he could write this gospel. Why did he not include the Christmas story? Or, or why not some details? Why not throw in an angelic visit or miraculous conception to visit Magi and shepherds? Why not do that? Well, I think that leads to what can be an interesting question because it leads us then to the nature of the gospels. For, for many of us, when we think of the gospels, there's probably 
a part of our brain that thinks of these four books as being the biographies of Jesus. Do you want to know about the life of Jesus? We turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, or John. There are four different authors recounting to us the, the life and ministry of Jesus. So there's some part of our brain that thinks, oh, these, these four Gospels, they're, they're, they're the biography of Jesus. But they're not. It's not how the Gospels were written or operate. They're not biographies in the sense of our modern day biography look at life of someone. One of my favorite biographies is by David McCullough on, on John Adams. It's a fascinating read. If you've never read it, I highly encourage it. But what does David McCullough do with the life of John Adams? Where he goes from his, his birth and through his life up until you know, writing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and he, until he was a president. And that's how we think of biographies. But that's not the Gospels. And the Gospels were not written for merely to be a historical record. They are written for a specific theological purpose. Matthew Mark, Luke, and John all had a bullseye of a meaning of theology, of doctrine that they were aiming for. So being guided by the Holy Spirit, they weren't so much concerned about telling us all about the life of Jesus from, from birth to death. And, and hence why we have so very, very little details on the childhood of Jesus. Think about what we know. We know his birth story. We know eight days later they took him to the temple. And we know when he was about 10 or 11 or so that they went back to Jerusalem to the temple and his parents left him behind. Then the next time we read about Jesus, he's somewhere around the age of 30. Why is that? Because each of the four Gospels are written as theological interpretations of the life of Jesus Christ. They have an aim of theology of doctrine of meeting that this purpose of proclaiming that Jesus has come. He's come to save his people and to inaugurate his kingdom over all the earth. And so that is the perspective of the Gospel of Mark. He wrote this Gospel with this theological bullseye in sight. And in typical Peter fashion, he tells us that bullseye right here in the opening sentence. What is the purpose of, of the Gospel of Mark? Is to emphasize that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who the Gospel is all about. That's, that's the whole purpose of Mark. Here's the good news of who Jesus is. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And so that's the one thing that Mark is aiming for from beginning to end. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. This is the Gospel. So he's, he's not worried so much about telling us about what Jesus was like in kindergarten. Or, or what position he played on, on, the football, on the football team. Or what college he went to. No, it was all about explaining who this Jesus is and what he has come to do. So we have this picture then of Mark, the secretary of the Apostle Peter. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's sitting down at his desk and he has all these scraps and pieces of paper around of Peter's sermons and Bible studies and teachings. And he's composing this and he's doing it so he can send it to the churches in Rome. Why? To show to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the purpose of the gospel according to Mark. So then within that purpose, he did not feel the need or the push by the Holy Spirit to include the birth account like we find in Mark, or sorry, in Matthew and in Luke. But in spite of not being a biographical sketch of the birth of Jesus, Mark does include the Christmas story. And he includes it in this one sentence. The Christmas story is there. We just have to know how to look for it. 
And to help us look for it, we think back to what we talked about last week. That Matthew is answering the, the who of Christmas. He's, he's looking at the genealogy of Jesus and he's answering who is a Christmas about. It's about the Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the, the son of Abraham. Now Mark is looking to answering why Christmas. We know the who, but why? And the why is very simple. Because it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So if you want to know the Christmas story according to Mark, it's right there in the opening sentence. The introduction. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For Mark, the Christmas story is more encompassing, is more encompassed in answering the why of Jesus. Why Jesus, why his birth? For his gospel. Brought to us and taught to us by the Son of God. As we read through these Gospels, we find there's going to be repetition between these accounts. and we, we better understand them when we take them all into consideration. But there's going to be repetition because they're all telling the same story. They're just telling it from different angles and perspectives. And matter of fact, we believe the Gospel of Mark was written first, somewhere in the 50s A.D. And after that Gospel was written, that Matthew and Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're going to write their Gospels, and they use Mark as source material. That's what we call them the Synoptic Gospels. They share so much in common. And then we get to the Gospel of John, which was written much later, and it goes off on its own trajectory. So we'll have these overlaps, as we find in a Christmas story, from these four different angles. But to help us under, to better understand this Christmas story in Mark 1, 1, we have to skip ahead just a few verses. So if your Bible is still open... Look with me at Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Where it says, Now after John, being John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark does not begin his gospel with a biographical sketch of Jesus. He begins with John the Baptist. That God has sent John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus. And after John the Baptist is, is arrested, then Jesus comes about, the, the preparation has been done, so Jesus comes about to begin his ministry. And how does he begin his ministry? He doesn't begin with a miracle. He doesn't walk on water. He doesn't raise somebody from the dead. He begins his ministry with a proclamation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus makes this proclamation. Repent and believe in the gospel. We often hear people saying, you know, that maybe they're going through a midlife crisis or whatever, and they're trying to figure out, what's my purpose in life? What, what am I here for? Well, Jesus tells us his purpose right here. Why was he born? Why is there Christmas? For him to go and issue this call to repent and believe in the gospel. So why Christmas? Because of repentance that leads to faith. The first thing Jesus does is call his people to repent of their sins. And here's the rub of it. The rub of it is we like the story of salvation, don't we? We don't want to go to hell. Nobody's very fond of renting an Airbnb in hell, right? Nobody's fond of the idea of going to hell. But just as we're not fond of the idea of going to hell, we're fond of the idea of salvation, we're not always as fond of the idea of repentance. 
We don't always want Jesus' repentance. Just save me from my sins and then leave me alone. That's a faulty view of Christ. That's a faulty view of Christian faith. That's a faulty view of Christmas. Inherent in all this, all this decoration, all we're doing is this call to repentance. Why? Because it's a saving grace. Jesus issues this call of saving grace by which a sinner, being truly aware of his sinfulness, understands the mercy of God in Christ. He grieves for his sins. He hates his sins. Therefore, he turns from them to God, fully intending and striving for a new obedience. It's interesting to think that the very first thing Jesus does to proclaim his ministry isn't about salvation. Isn't about healing us from all of our physical woes. It's addressing the problem of our sinfulness and our obedience. That we love our sins more than we love Jesus. That we're more willing to run down the path of hell than to put our foot on the path to heaven. And the very first thing Jesus tells us in the Gospel of Mark about what he was born to do is to call us to repentance. To say, I am a sinner. To come to understand, I am a sinner. These are my sins. And the more I see these sins in the light of Jesus, the more I hate these sins. Because these sins are what held him on the cross. These sins are what he was crucified for. These sins are what he suffered for. These sins or what he suffered hell for. God, I hate those sins. And I want to turn from them. And I want to turn back more and more to Jesus. According to Mark, that's part of the Christmas story. Repent. And believe in the gospel. We know the word gospel. We know what it means. It's good news. Not just good news of school's over, we, we got a raise, or we're able to speed through town and not get a speeding ticket. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that the Son of God is Emmanuel, God in the flesh, who was born that Christmas morning to come and save his people from their sins. It's the good news that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. It's the good news that Jesus is God, that he was born to die. We are called to believe in his good news. So why Christmas? So we can repent and believe in the gospel. So we can repent and have faith through the gospel. Nothing more, nothing less. To heed the call of Jesus. So we would turn from our sins and in faith turn to Jesus to love him more and follow after him as we have been called to. From Mark's perspective, this is the Christmas story. In a sense, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't care about sharing with us the, about the shepherds and the wise men and the angels. No, what does Mark care about? That this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To repent and believe. But he's also stressing the authority here, the authority that has to be there to issue this call of repentance and faith. 
that there has to be an authority involved to go to people and say, you're going to hell, repent and believe in the gospel. And it's not authority that is it's just given to anybody. It's not just a, an authority we, 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 uh, we, we volunteer for. It's a divine authority. It's an authority that comes from God himself. And Mark is telling us here that, this, that there is such authority in this call. There's such authority behind this call that it has to be prepared for. It doesn't just show up. Tell us about John the Baptist who came to prepare the way. And what did John the Baptist preach? He's preaching the same message that Jesus was preaching, to repent. But he wasn't the authority. He was preparing for the divine authority. That this good news, this gospel, is about Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And think back to me last week, where Matthew does the groundwork of identification. He begins with the name Jesus, just as Mark does here as well. We talked about, in the Hebrew, that name is Joshua, and in the Greek it becomes Jesus. And that name means that the Lord Yahweh saves, the Lord is salvation. And we see that name at work with Joshua, that Joshua succeeded uh, Moses and, and God called Joshua to, to lead his people into the promised land, that, that, that Joshua was the one who God would use to bring salvation from, from physically wandering, uh, years of wandering and grumbling. It was salvation for God's people. And now Matthew says, and Mark is saying along with them, you think of Joshua, now here's this Jesus. Here's the one who brings salvation, but it's a salvation from sins. Jesus isn't so much worried about us getting a, you know, a place at the river or our beachfront or somewhere in the mountains. He's not so much concerned about the, the physical locale of us. He has come to address the problem that lies at the root of all of us, and that is our sinfulness and our sins. That he is Jesus, the one who saves. This is the one who brings salvation. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel, the one who's the savior. But he also identifies him as the Christ. Originally a title for the Messiah. It means the anointed one. And to be anointed is to be set apart and empowered by God for a task that he gives. And so we're told here that Jesus is the one who's been anointed by God to be the Messiah. To be the one who would save God's people from their sins. He has come on a mission from God. Think of the Blues Brothers, right? Come on a mission from God. Well, Jesus has come on a mission from God. And this mission was he was born to save. Born to save his people through obedience and death. He is the long-promised Messiah. And so Mark, with, uh, along with Matthew, identifies Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But he also goes a little bit further, a little bit different direction than Matthew does. He identifies Jesus as being the Son of God. And this is a statement of the incarnation of Jesus. He is the Savior of sinners. He is the one who's been anointed by God for this task. But the one who is called by God to his task is God himself. The incarnate God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. That this Jesus, this one he's talking about, this one who the gospel is about, this is the one who is 100% God and 100% man. He is the eternal son of God. He is the second person of Trinity. John says this is Jesus. This Jesus is the God who is tabernacling with his people. 
So right there in the opening, Mark tells us there's something different about this one. Is he, 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 this isn't, he isn't, there's something, there's something different about him and that this is God with us. This is the, the Son of God. There's a, there's a statement of sense of the Trinity, isn't it? There's a Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Mark is telling us in the Christmas story is a reminder that God himself has come as the Messiah. God incarnate has come on this mission of salvation. This isn't just anybody. This is God himself who has come to save his people. And for the people of that time, and really for all time, that's an enormous statement. We think about the context of what Mark wrote. He's writing to Christians in Rome and starting around the time he was writing this, Christians in Rome were under a lot of tribulation. Nero's coming as emperor. Nero would end up taking Christians and, 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 and tying them to stakes and burning them alive just for the sake he could light up his garden for parties. He, he would take Christians and, and throw them into the stadium and the Colosseum so they could be eaten alive by lions and people entertaining and cheering them. Being a Christian at a time wasn't just a difficulty, it could be a, a, a life-ending sentence. And so what's the good news that shared with these people who may be lit alive on fire? Who may be beheaded, crucified up down, thrown into a, into a coliseum with starving lions? What's the good news for them? Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. This gospel tells them that the Father so loved them that he would send his only Son to be their anointed Savior. And that the divine Son so loved them that he would voluntarily come to be their anointed Savior. And that the Holy Spirit so loved them that he would guide the Son in being their anointed Savior. It's the encouragement that the triumph God himself is the one who is engaged in salvation. And my gut feeling this morning is that all of us here need that reminder, we need that encouragement, don't we? We may not be uh, under threat of, of, of being crucified, of being lit alive, or anything else like that. But we live in a fallen and broken world. Sometimes life is just hard. There's depression. There's anxiety, there's worry, there's family dysfunction, there's marital dysfunction. There may be children who are, who are walking away from Jesus. There may be grandchildren who, who, who are struggling, who are, spiritually, uh, who are spiritually in places they shouldn't be. But my guess is all of us here this morning have something we need help with. And here's the help, here's the encouragement right here. The Father so loves you, the Son so loves you, the Holy Spirit so loves you that they sent the Son to be your salvation. And for Mark, that's the enormity of the Christmas story. Born that day in the city of David was God in the flesh, the divine Son of God, the divinely anointed Savior of God's people. Christmas is about salvation. Salvation from the very one we have sinned against, but yet who so loved us would dare to love us so much to save us from our sins. God himself has come in the flesh to be the anointed Savior. <clears throat> so as we think about Christmas through that lens, 
we realize then that there's only one response to his Christmas story. That's to do as Jesus called his people to do, to repent and to believe. That was the emphasis of John the Baptist's ministry. That was the emphasis of Jesus' ministry. That's a key word for Mark here. John preached it, Jesus preached it, and Mark wants us to remember it. Why? Because we cannot properly celebrate the birth of our Savior until we acknowledge the reality of our sin. We can do all the Christmas things. We can say all the right things. We can do everything Christmas. But if there's no repentance, then it's not Christmas. It's just the illusion of Christmas. It's just a a vision of Christmas. Because if we don't believe that the one who was born was the one who was born to be our Savior, then what's this all matter to us? What's what's the Christmas story matter? Was it three wise men or was it ten wise men? Was the manger actually in a stable? Was it the basement of somebody's house? What's it all matter? Apart from repentance and belief, it doesn't matter. So what is Christmas according to Mark? To repent and believe. To know that you are a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That God so loved you that he gave his only son to be born in that manger to do everything that was needed to be done to be nailed on a cross, to die for your sins, to be laid in the tomb of a stranger, to be resurrected three days later, to ascend into heaven where he stands now as our risen Savior. So Christmas, according to Mark, is a very simple message. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So repent and believe.